I am Lucia. And I'm Nadia. In Who Rose the World podcast, we will talk about the European Union and United Nations and all the burning world issues that our generation will have to face when our time comes to rule the world. Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Rules the World podcast. Today we have the honor of being joined by Ricardo Pinada, who is a director and co-founder of Sustenta Honduras. And I'm really honored by having the opportunity to speak with you today. So this podcast is also a collaboration with Our Voice, Our Future campaign. And I'm really excited for us to, to have this uh, and really looking forward to, to hearing some of the influences like Ricardo explaining how uh, he works with, with human rights and sustainability in general. So the EU and the UN are marking the 75th anniversary of the UN Declaration of Human Rights as the first legal document to set out the fundamental human rights to be universally protected. One thing that is interesting about this is also that climate change is included as a right that people have the right to a healthy environment. This is also interesting when it comes to Ricardo's work, which we'll talk much more about at this podcast. But before we go into that, uh, Ricardo, would you maybe uh, briefly introduce yourself? Well, thank you, Nadia, Lucilla, and, and well, everyone who might be listening today. I'm really honored to be here. My name is Ricardo Pineda. I'm a climate activist originally from Honduras. And um, through my years, I have fostered to, to bridge the gap between uh, development and the needs of the developing world with the needs of achieving um, the goal of limiting global warming to 1.5. So um, through that, I've been doing quite a lot of work, work on, on NGOs, work on researchers. I've been close to the UN and the EU. And now I'm happily one of the Our Voice, Our Future champions who have been speaking about the role of youth leadership towards development. Thank you so much. And before we really get started, can you maybe also share a bit about why you decided to co-found the NGO uh, Sustenta Honduras and what do you do in, in that organization more concretely? So I'm the co-founder of Sustenta Honduras. This was one of the first youth-led collectives or organizations that decided to work specifically on the interrelation between youth and climate issues. Now, when I started, Honduras was being regarded as the most climate vulnerable country in the world, according to the Climate Vulnerability Index. But one of the things that I quickly found out is that the public wasn't aware of this and um, there wasn't really any public participation that was meaningful around climate. A lot of the work that was being done around climate was very, in my view, very tokenistic, where you would perhaps plant a tree every day and, and now, or you would, you know, do some recycling or, or perhaps change your light bulb, but we wouldn't be doing anything that would definitely increase the, the resiliency of the country when it comes to being the most climate vulnerable country in the world. So that's when me and a, and a couple of friends initially started um, this, this youth organization, which has expanded, I would say massively in the last three years. We are now over 600 volunteers and we mostly focus on, on climate education and really bringing messages of, of adaptation to the most remote parts of the country. But we also have branched out to also work on research, so advocate for policies within uh, the national government. And um, we are also fostering mechanisms to protect environmental defenders. So I'm sure I'll get to speak more about that, but um, a lot to do in, in such a small country. 
Nadia already in the beginning mentioned that you're also a part of the Our Voice, Our Future campaign with, with, with which we collaborate on this podcast to give the platform to amazing youth voices and youth activists from all around the world. So maybe can you please just first elaborate on how campaign like Our Voice, Our, Voice, Our Future contributes to raising youth voices like your own? Yes, and I'm very thankful for the Our Voice, Our Future campaign because it was one of the only spaces I've found where youth meaningfully get the microphone to, to say essentially whatever we want in the format and in the way that we feel like is most like us. And um, I believe that so many times in, in so many big and different organizations, uh, we are used to being handed out scripts and um, following perhaps something that someone else had already written and in a sense, and I wouldn't say that's that's a meaningful youth participation. Here in the Our Voice, Our Future campaign, and we've really been, um, we are leaders all around the world, leaders who have engaged massively through, through social media or through other channels and that are every day um, trying to bridge the work that our, our countries or our communities are doing and the work that the EU is doing globally. So, um, yeah, in my case, I'm one of the only uh, Our Voice of Future uh, champions from, from Latin America. Um, we aren't many, but um, I'm going to say it's been a really inspiring place where we are not only allowed to, to, you know, to participate meaningfully, but also to foster. I, I think our end goal is to foster more youth participation that is meaningful around the issues that are most pressing to our countries. And that could be climate change, that could be gender equality. There's so much to talk about. There's so much work to do. And um, I think that Our Voice Our Future is the best platform for that. And I hope it can only grow from now on. I'm sure that it will do that. Um, so talking about uh, meaningful uh, inclusion of youth, how do you think that multilateral organizations like the UN can be even better at including youth-led organizations more meaningfully? I appreciate that question, and I wanted to touch that back to what I was just saying about um, how many organizations expect perhaps a, a tokenistic participation of youth. And that is something that is always perhaps part of our mindset. It's like a chip that is already in our heads. The thought that we can't engage with youth with something that is too important or too big because, you know, children or youth might mess up or you know they're too young etc and that's the the thought that we want to challenge particularly when it comes to development and that we've seen this especially with social movements in Europe in the past few years that the power of the voice of the youth is critical it's critical to change masses and it's critical to to really foster a, a new way of thinking that'll motivate the the public and um, I'm very specifically thinking about Greta Thunberg right now. We know Greta, a Swedish activist. She started when she was 15, I believe. And, um, and all her work to, to foster climate education and awareness around climate has really made waves around the world. Now, when it comes to us developing countries, um, we find even more pressing issues than, than some of the ones that are being found in Europe. For instance, one of the biggest um, worries that we have is that a lot of environmental defenders are being criminalized and are being targeted for their for their work and for their advocacy work when it comes to protecting water resources and the environment etc so in that regard 
I really believe that youth involvement should elevate to, to a point where we can safely and meaningfully address, I want to say, aside from creating policy, creating programs and projects that are more focused towards the needs of the youth. And I want to be very concrete here. I, am, I think that many multilaterals have, when it comes to youth, they do uh, sometimes very marginal uh, events that might be really cool for a day, you know, like planting a tree or picking up some uh, trash from the beach. But what I've learned from youth in the developing world is that we really want to be out there, you know, helping. We really want to be there making a change. We don't want to plant trees. We want to plant forests. We want to do big work to really bring climate education to every corner of every school. And um, I think that by the time that we can be really invited as meaningful partners in this and seen as, you know, just as a regular partner in society, I really believe that we will have a much more inclusive society and that will be a lot better at performing their goals. So that's why I always say, do go for more youth-led organizations, more youth-led involvement, more youth leadership when it comes to development. And our involvement is also so much more important because a healthy environment is actually our fundamental human right. The United Nations Declaration on Human Rights recently recognized uh, this right. And I'm also very happy to come from a country where a right to a healthy environment is also written in our institution, um, constitution. So it is that much more important uh, that we also take ownerships and are seen as equal um, actors here. So maybe how do you see the linkages between the right to a healthy environment and then on the other side, climate adaptation? No, I think it's all um, very much aligned. Again, I was also very, very, um, it, it is something that you would have thought that was already a right. And I know it was something that so many countries had to fight for. And uh, I'm glad it's formally recognized now. And of course, we have to do a lot of work to enable these rights. So when it comes to the right of the healthy environment and climate, there's a strong interrelation. Um, climate is known as perhaps the biggest factor of, the, of stress for the upcoming uh, years and decades. United Nations officials have called climate change as the most pressing issue that humanity will likely face. And um, with that regard, climate affects much more than, than the climate system itself. It affects the oceans, erosion, it's acidification, it affects the soils, erosion, it affects through social environmental factors, the people. And the people that are most affected are those that are normally in the front lines that are already in states of poverty and that are already perhaps exposed to many of the different ways that the environment could be degraded. In our case in Honduras, and we, use, we still use a lot of firewood for cooking. And um, when you use firewood, not only in a sense, do you promote deforestation, but also you're inhaling the toxic smoke, which normally it's women and children who are being exposed to these types of situations. So I think that um, concretely, climate action must have a strong linkages with reducing poverty and traditional development. And these two must come hand in hand for the, for the uh, upcoming future. When we hear about climate mitigation, unfortunately, we imagine electric cars and uh, very technologically crazy things that perhaps we're not there yet in the global south. So um, one of the things that we really strive forward to is for countries to, especially for, for organizations like the EU and other multilaterals to, to, to meaningfully address 
what the what the biggest majority of the people need and to try to find decarbonization where it'll impact the everyday life of people that are perhaps not very well off and by that i mean some other solutions that could be like public transportation or of course renewable energies or the way food systems are produced etc have a much bigger potential of not only fostering climate mitigation and reducing emissions but also fostering economic growth especially in countries that haven't seen it in quite a couple of years so yeah i think that there's a lot to be said there but um i think that we're just starting here in this race to to keep global warming to 1.5. And uh, I think it's something that we must do for the future generations. Really agree that 1.5 degrees is definitely a target that we need to keep alive. That being said, uh, climate change is, is already happening. And you already mentioned that Honduras is one of the most uh, climate vulnerable countries, meaning that uh, we still need to talk about climate adaptation. Can you maybe elaborate a bit on why we need to talk more about climate adaptation and what could be examples of uh, adaptation in Honduras? I think you said it very well, Nadia. Um, climate change is already here. And if it's somewhere, it's definitely in the most developing countries and in its most vulnerable uh, communities. So um, Honduras, as being the most climate vulnerable country um, has seen a lot of damage from in the sense of hurricanes. In the past um, 20 years, we've almost seen three different um, hurricanes that have wiped out essentially half of the GDP individually through different uh, years. This means that a lot of the progress, the economic progress that is being done in the year basically gets wiped out by extreme weather events that are becoming more frequent that also are becoming stronger. So um, yes, speaking about climate adaptation is a need. And one of the biggest things that we need is to match climate mitigation uh, finance, which is currently still under targets, but to match climate adaptation financing to climate mitigation financing. And um, completely, what does that mean as examples? Um, one that I always speak a lot about is uh, building the resiliency in the energy grid, and particularly things like that you wouldn't think about too much, but for example, the poles where electricity goes through or the transmission lines uh, in developing countries like, like mine in Honduras are severely underinvested. And some of the even most crucial ele electricity infrastructure are still be, uh, built on wooden poles, even though there are heavy safety regulations around the world, which uh, discourage these types of practices. But however, we have to re uh, recur to these types of uh, practices due to perhaps wrong administrations or just perhaps the lack of money. So um, what does this cost? This causes a lot uh, of power outages, uh, a lot of intermittency in the grid. And this doesn't allow us to perhaps expand in other uh, capacities such as renewable energy or solar energy in homes because the way that the energy is being transported uh, is already deficient. So um, that's always one. I always speak about electricity because it really becomes critical, especially in times of hurricanes or in times of droughts, where basically all the lack of, of, of services just makes things worse, right, uh, with, with the lack of electricity. But there are quite many other examples when it comes to climate mitigation. Uh, I'm, I mean, sorry. There are many other examples when it comes to climate um, adaptation. 
I think that uh, for one, early warning systems should be a priority, especially in countries that get so many disasters. Um, I also think that we really, really should invest more in more of the social aspect of educating people, of making sure that uh, there are also institutes that are perhaps equipped to deal with environmental disasters. And this could also be so much as legal institutes as also um, institutes that are environmental, et cetera. So I think that I could speak all day about this. There's a lot to do, but um, I think I'm gonna leave it there because uh, I don't wanna bore you with all the solutions, but we do have them, we just need to implement. If you don't want to bore us with all the solutions that I'm going to just directly ask you, what are the solutions, especially when it comes to the work of your organization, Sustenta Honduras? Um, so where exactly do you work with climate adaptation and also the capacity building in this field? Yeah, for, for us, our most meaningful uh, work, it's really around environmental advocacy. Um, I think that that is where it's most impactful because the way we can get youth together to try to tweak and shift policy and propose um, new legislation that perhaps hasn't been seen by, by decision makers. Um, that has really led us very far. I wanna speak about a few examples, but um, at COP um, in, in just a few years ago, we were able to sign, uh, we were able to get the government of Honduras to sign the declaration of children and youth for climate action. And this allowed for more participation of, of, of young people in, um, in, in spaces like, in spaces of, 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 um, of international cooperation, such as the Conference of the Parties and other United Nations events. But more than that, it also allowed, it was also the first perhaps commitment of the government to, to really value youth as one of the most vulnerable communities or populations when it comes to climate change. And just the fact that we were able to get the government to sign that and to sign some commitments behind of that was already a, a big part of our work. Right now we're fostering what is known as the ESCASU agreement. It is an agreement that protects environmental defenders and that also allows for the right for public, uh, for access to public information when it comes to environmental matters. I think that the ESCASU agreement is a continuity of what we were just talking about a few moments ago about the, the, the human rights declaration on the environment because uh, ESCASU agreement um, really focuses and targets uh, those people that are already in the front lines. Um, the government hasn't wanted to, to, to sign the, the ESCASU agreement. This has happened for even two different governments that are perhaps, um, you know, very independent of their own. However, our work as young leaders is to showcase the importance of this and to try to elevate the voices of some of the young leaders, which unfortunately have been, um, well, some have, many been silenced, many have been murdered, especially the, the indigenous leaders uh, that have been working so hard to, to, pre to prevent extractivist practices in our country. So uh, I think that that just shows how important our work uh, as youth on advocacy is very important. But um, a little bit beyond that, um, one of the other things that we found we don't do in, in, in developing countries is, is research. And um, I was particularly surprised coming back from my master's abroad 
to see that um, our country in total doesn't publish more than 200 research papers a year that collects all the institutions and all the researchers that are within the country. If you think about that, 200 research uh, papers, that could be like even a small university, even less than that, that, you know, like the the research output of so many developed countries are uh, hundreds of times higher than that. So one of the things that are, we are doing is that we're getting young researchers who are currently perhaps uh, already in a, close path to achieving these, perhaps they're doing already their, their engineering studies, or perhaps they have already been engaged in, in a particular topic. And what we do as a youth collective is that we mentor them, we support um, their, their intentions of doing research. And not only that, we connect that to a concrete uh, policy objective or, or opportunity to, to foster policy in our country. The, the way we do this is to, or, or why we do this, is to make the research as applicable as it can possibly be. Because even though we would love to have any type of research in Honduras, I think we need to prioritize the research that can bring forward development and the research that can attack some of the most pressing needs of, of the population. And by that, we foster dozens of, um, of research on different topics such as energy, agriculture, forestry, and avoiding deforestation, and so many other topics that we've never thought we would be uh, talking about. So these types of activities, um, you wouldn't think of them as, as an activity from a youth organization, but we found them as being so impactful and so uh, changing towards the, the, the generation of, of knowledge within our country that um, we really hope that other multilateral organizations and donors could contribute and, and help to these types of causes to with the end goal of, again, meaningfully elevating the voice of, of the youth towards um, promoting climate action. Thank you so much. And you've already talked a bit about uh, your experiences uh, with participating in the conferences of the parties, uh, which is COP. Uh, and we also saw that you participated in COP27. I did that as well. Unfortunately, we didn't meet there. Uh, what a shame. Um, but uh, you've really been, been working on bringing youth perspectives uh, to, uh, to the conferences of the parties. Could you maybe elaborate a bit on uh, how it was for you to participate in COP27 and what are your expectations for COP28 when it comes to climate adaptation? Yes, it was very unfortunate that I didn't see you. Um, it's been, COP has becoming so much big uh, every year. I started since COP25 back in Madrid. And um, I've been going to COP ever since, as well as the subsidiary bodies. And it's, uh, I just wanted to start by acknowledging how, how interesting it is to see so many more people getting engaged, especially youth people, uh, youth on, on climate, uh, you know, climate change topics. And um, one of the things that I want to recognize from the last COP is that there was a more meaningful space for youth. We finally had one a pavilion where young leaders could not only speak, but also organize events. And um, we also had a youth, um, I want to say, um, perhaps a, for these two COPs, we have a, a youth focal point that is a, in charge of, of, of you know, of the engagement of youth. However, I, I still think that we need a lot more to meaningfully 
raise the voices of youth. One thing that I've been working a lot about is uh, how can we bring more people from our organization, especially those very local grassroots perspectives, those Afro-Indigenous communities, for example, of Honduras, who would perhaps never dream of speaking for a global audience and speaking about what is really happening on the front lines of climate change. So I think that there's still a lot of work to do. Um, unfortunately, um, it, it's still very difficult to get to COP, and especially for, for us in, in developing countries, there are so many more things that are perhaps not immediately visible, but the work on visas or even just traveling outside from our countries is very, is very costly. So um, those are, are some of the things that we are working before COP and we are hoping to get much more uh, involvement uh, at, these, at, at, at these type of global events when it comes to young leaders from the global south. Now, just very quickly, what I hope for uh, COP28, um, I think that there was a lot of progress on the loss and damage fund. I think that that is very crucial for countries like mine that face a lot of hurricanes and other extreme weather events. However, we really hope that that is moved forward, that that is really becomes enabled and that, and that it goes from beyond the discussions to the implementation. Um, that's a big part. Um, I know that also the global stock take is coming, which is basically a way for to hold accountable what the progress of, of the countries have been uh, for the last years when it comes to climate. I think that we are not in a good path. And I think that it is now when youth have to raise our voices even more than ever to try to meet and to try to limit uh, global warming at 1.5. And for that, I always recognize really the, the leadership and the role of the EU, um, which has done a lot, has gone a lot to do, um, not only to meet the targets that have been set by the IPCC, but also in a way to foster unity and collaboration. And I really hope that that can be expanded to regions like Central America and to other regions of the world. Thank you so much, Ricardo, for taking the time and talking with us. I truly admire the work that you do, and I'm eager to follow more, um, more about your work. And I wish you all the best at the COP28 and all the upcoming conferences. And of course, that together we managed to inspire and empower a lot, a lot of young people and new generations to fight for our planet and fight for climate. Thank you so much. Thank you both. See you. This was Who Rules the World podcast by European Union Youth Delegates, Lucia and Nadia. WRW coming soon with next episode on SoundCloud and other platforms.